Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, they were standing in the Seventh Heaven Bar after a mission where they have successfully destroyed one of the Mako reactors and are trying to figure out their next plan and whether or not Cloud is going to hang around for another job. But first, he meets with an old friend here. We were introduced to Tifa Lockhart right at the end of the last episode, and she had just asked him whether or not he had remembered the promise. the more famous scenes of many famous scenes in this game. And he responds simply with a question. And you know, it's interesting, Ira, a lot of times, and we've talked about this a little bit before, and lots of different storytelling, Final Fantasy has done it. Um, Aaron Sorkin does this with his characters a lot, where somebody will say something, and then another character will ask a question that essentially just allows them to reiterate or tell the story they were going to tell anyway. And it's a just a rhetorical device to help the audience listen to the information twice so it will stick better. Right. So I think, in a way, we're supposed to see Cloud asking promise as one of those, but sure. it may also be a little bit deeper than that. Right. As we've mentioned before, and I imagine we'll mention again, Cloud has some memory issues, and the the reason for those is a, is a big part of of who he is and why he behaves the way he does. So you're right. It is just sort of a, a storytelling device to get us into the exposition without it being too clunky. But at the same time, it it's a bit of foreshadowing. And it also puts the next scene into an interesting context because the first time you watch it, this is just a flashback. Like you might see a, a flashback in anything else, but there's definitely an ambiguity about Whose memory is this? Is it Tifa's? Is it Cloud's? Or are they doing some collective work here to try to remember something? And we, the audience, are now creating a sort of third version of whatever reality actually was. Either way, we're transported seven years ago to a well sitting beneath a starry, starry night. It's quite beautiful. The, the stars in particular, again, I think, are what create this iconic shot and a bit of a, a green sheen in the sky as well. And Cloud sort of remembers along with her and, and the, this younger version of him. So we double-checked on the ages. They would have been about 14 and 13 years old, Cloud and Tifa, respectively, at the time. And he remembers wanting to join Soldier, wanting to go off and join the war effort and become a hero he says, I'm going to be the best there is, just like Sephiroth. And this is the first time we hear this name. And it's interesting that uh, that we get this hint that there is a war somewhere in this world. And, and we don't know at this point, we as players, as readers of this text, don't know who's fighting against whom or who this hero Sephiroth, who this war hero is uh, fighting against. But that will be made clear later in the story. I think it's also a good way of, again, bringing us deeper into the world, understanding that this is a world where young men who are 14 years old dream of becoming war heroes and, and going off to battle, and that it's set kind of around a World War II era type of setting, I, I think, really heightens that, because that was a, a way a lot of people in this country felt at, at the time, so there's a, a sort of parallelism there. And Tifa responds by calling him the Great Sephiroth. So we're now given this idea of a person as a war hero, as somebody who is referred to as the Great. Uh, very interesting way to introduce who, spoilers, we, we all know now <laughs> in 2019 will be the main villain of the story. When we were playing this for the first time in 1997, we didn't know that. And I, I just thought this was a really clever way 
to introduce him as somebody our main characters really admire and look up to. Yeah, it makes him a sort of a, a figure out of myth, a, you know, a figure out of legend, you know, that everybody would know somebody who, you know, if, if it's a big enough war, probably everybody is touched by it in some way. They know somebody who's gone to the war or has been affected by the war. But also everyone knows this particular hero, which is not something that happens in modern day wars very much. We don't necessarily know the names of individual soldiers, unless usually something tragic has happened to them. I don't know, that might be an indictment of, of our time, but it is, uh, for, for the storytelling purposes, I think it's particularly interesting. This is a character we need to be aware of, uh, you know, who needs to be on our, our story reading radar. And so, you know, Tifa recognizing, hey, if you're going to be a hero, why don't I give you a heroic task? And she says, if I'm ever in a bind, well, first she says, if you ever get really famous and I'm ever in a bind, you'll come and save me, all right? If I'm ever in trouble, my hero will come and rescue me. And there's a way to maybe kind of roll your eyes at that in a modern context. I do think it's worth remembering she's a 13-year-old girl, and it's okay to, to want to be rescued. It is a little bit weird that she's inventing some problematic, troublesome scenario in the future. That... <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. But again, maybe that's just this type of world. You know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there, and, and war is going on, and so... You know, if my friend ever does become a hero, yes, I'd like for my childhood friend to come rescue Sure. I, I think a, another way to think about it is we are friends now. You have these goals to go do this thing, to go do this dangerous thing, to become a, a hero, you know, a warrior, an adventurer. Well, okay, like maybe I don't want my friend to leave. But if this is his goal, no. maybe one of the ways we can continue to be friends, we can continue to know each other in the future, is if your goal uh, and mine, or, or what might be my future, intersect somehow. So, yeah, it, it could, it's a little bit odd that, you know, I'm going to be in trouble in the future, and you're going to come help me out. That feels a little strange, and, and I get that. But at the same time, I think the sentiment is more about, hey, if, if I ever need you, you know, we're friends, right? You're, you'll, you'll help me out. And I, right. I do really appreciate that. And, in fact, it feels to me like a parallel of what we'll see in Final Fantasy VIII, right? Speaking of memory issues. I'll be there waiting yeah. for you. Sure. You'll find yeah. me, right? I'll, I'll be here, I promise. Right. And, yeah, I think it's also important, or I think it's also interesting that promises in fantasy settings tend to be particularly important. You don't want to be an oath-breaker. In a, in a setting where magic can have, uh, you know, very real effects, right? Because making a promise like that and not keeping it can be dangerous, not just dishonorable. Well, and not only that, there's a shooting star over them as this happens. So that just drives home that point even more, right? In, in your magical fantasy world, this isn't just a 14-year-old boy telling a 13-year-old girl, yeah, whatever, I'll do it. This is now been promised in the stars. <laughs> right, right. And Final Fantasy has long had an obsession with the cosmos, right? We get the, the two moons of Final Fantasy IV. You know, we've got mm -hmm. uh, the night sky of Final Fantasy XV and, and all the various, all the other various examples in between. So, so yeah, it's, it's an important promise and it's an important memory. And the fact that Cloud maybe has to have this memory jogged by his friend before he can grab onto it is also important. Yeah. So we come back to modern time, current events, and Cloud <laughs> so cynically responds, hey, I'm not a hero, and I didn't become famous, so I can't keep our promise. He gets real technical about it. You said, hey, you said if I ever get famous to come help you. Well, sorry. Not that's that's like the five year old. Uh huh. That, that's like the no, you said I had to, you said I had to go to bed on time. You didn't say I couldn't get up again. Like, yeah. all right, child. <laughs> right, right. And, and Tifa says, but you joined soldier. And before, <laughs> uh -huh. and again, he, you would, you know, probably just shrug that off. 
But that is a key point that we will come back to. Uh, But Barrett shows up, kind of breaks up this whole memory fest, not really seeing their personal lives as being that important. Just gives Cloud the money, says, here, fine. Thanks. We'll see you. Cloud just laughs about it and without even really being asked says, okay, I'll do the next mission, but for double. (laughs) Jeez. Uh huh. Which again, I think is a hint that Cloud actually has just been a little bit shaken by the fact that maybe this memory. Either way you want to interpret it, whether he didn't fully have the memory and that's messing up or he did have the memory and now he realizes deep down, oh, I got to keep this promise. He's He wants to stay with the team, but he doesn't want them to know he wants to stay with the team. So he makes it about the money. Barrett gets real mad and says that money is for Marlene's schooling and then cuts it in half and doesn't even give him the option. He says 2000 and and Tifa says, thanks, Cloud, before he can even say no. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone did a little bit of their their own bartering there. I think it, it shows all of our characters having their own agency, their own agendas here, but all recognizing without saying out loud, they all need each other right now. There's another funny moment where you wake up the next day having slept in the hideout. Tifa asks Cloud if he slept well and you're given... The options of either Barrett's snoring kept me up or next to you, who wouldn't? <laughs> huh. uh-huh. So again, it's kind of your decision how much Cloud is either into Tifa here, into making those kind of jokes, or just into ragging on Barrett all the time. For safety purposes, and because it's, I, I thought it was inappropriate, I chose Barrett's snoring kept me up. Right, yeah, I don't, we don't need to be a, a creep necessarily. But I don't, I don't know, is that next to you who wouldn't line meant to be creepier? Is it meant to be endearing? I think it's meant to be endearing. And, and it's also a part of the you know, showing of Tifa, the, the point system, where you can have Cloud hint more and more that he's into Tifa if that's the way you want to take the story. I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's out for the next mission. No, you know, no waiting around. We're getting right to it. We're supposed to head off to the Sector 5 reactor next. Uh, And then there's a a really interesting thing that happens here. And I would have loved if this was driven home in every other element of the game because there are short little tutorials. Like at one point earlier on, uh, Barrett tells you how to press circle to run, stuff like that. Um, And Jesse explains the Midgar map to Cloud, which if you pull back and you go, now we know Cloud probably doesn't remember it, but if he's been living in this world the whole time, he should probably know how Midgar works. That's more for us as an audience. But I love this turnaround when Cloud explains to Barrett how to use Materia because he would be the more experienced person with the military training who's used these little magical gemstones that give the characters in this world their magical powers and allow them to do all kinds of things from summon monsters to heal themselves uh, and actually plenty of other stuff that will become storyline important. But for now, I think it's just really interesting that one, Cloud gives the tutorial. um, it, It kind of flips the trope that we're used to where the main character is the ignorant one who has to have the entire world explained to him He knows something that the other characters don't. And it really drives home more this kind of trust that we have in Cloud that he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing, which is a really clever way to set up some twists for later on. I do want to draw some parallels slash distinctions. Uh, We haven't had in-game tutorials very much in Final Fantasy. We we didn't have them in 5, but we did in 6, right? It It would go to a black screen and the ghost would appear, or the Moogle, or the Imp, or whomever, uh, and they would say, here's how you use Mog's dances, here's how you use Magicite, and so on and so forth. And because Six was sort of presented as that on-stage uh, performance in a way, it made sense to do it that way. Here, it's, it's kind of fourth wall breaking, right? Like, we have to understand that, you know, that Barrett's saying, press O to run, he's not talking to the characters or he yeah he's not talking to the in-game characters like you said jesse's not talking to cloud they're talking to us 
But here it right. is a little bit different because materia is part of this world. It's not just a game mechanic. So yeah, I think that's particularly interesting that that here we're meant to think that maybe Cloud is talking to us, but also talking to the characters. If we continue with the theme of the players are sort of a light warrior uh, in their in the way that they interact with these worlds, that's kind of interesting. I also want to draw a parallel between the materia of Final Fantasy VII and the magicite of Final Fantasy VI. In Final Fantasy VI, the little crystalline stones you collect to give you your superpowers, they are the crystallized remains of sentient, sapient, magical beings. And in Final Fantasy VII, they're not. They're the crystallized essence of the life stream, the, the Mako energy. But maybe they kind of are because perhaps the planet is kind of sentient. Perhaps the planet is kind of sapient. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I like that as a parallel that in Final Fantasy, sometimes you draw your superpowers, the power to save the planet, from the energy of others. Uh, and I think that parallels, like I said, 6, it, definitely 5 when the crystals shatter, 10 with the Hymn of the Faith, four with the with the combined prayer of the planet like in order to save existence we have to work together in a way or you know it's the ewoks taking down the empire with logs and sticks against all of the giant machinery and the, sure. there's always that element of it there are countless hayao miyazaki films where we get that kind of imagery and it will be throughout lord of the rings for sure Right. Oh, when you mean when the giant tree people right <laughs> take down Destroyed the industry? industry? Yeah. You you also Not see super it, subtle. If if I can invoke the uh, lesser liked Star Wars movies a bit, I think it's particularly interesting that in the prequels, Anakin is way into technology, and Obi Wan's the one who like makes friends with the giant lizard dragon. But I also think yeah. that we got to be a little bit careful about only you know th that the good guys only ever are into nature because that that can feel like. People who live in cities can be cool too, right? Oh yeah, Barrett's got a gun grafted onto his arm and all the SIDs and stuff. So yeah, no, you're right. But people don't like some of the Star Wars movies? I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> uh, but speaking of the man with the gun grafted onto his arm, he leads the rest of the team uh, back to this next mission. Uh, they hop on another train. This time the train ride to the mission doesn't go so well. Barrett gets in a fight with the conductor. The security alarms get tripped up. Jesse explains that she may have made a mistake when it came to creating the fake IDs. So you've got to like keep running up the train as the red light blares and you know everything gets intense for a minute. And you decide, look, we got to jump off the train. Tifa goes first. I love that. No hesitation. Opens the door. Hops out. Then Cloud. Then Barrett, uh, which takes you to. Uh, a tunnel to a scaffolding high above the slums. I love this shot because you can see all of the, the slums below and you're still moving upward toward the reactor. You, you get this weird, uneasy sense of how far beneath you all the, the slums are and that will become important here in just a moment. Also, visually, it's just a, a stunning shot. Uh, again, the, the kind of scope we had never seen before in games. Uh, so the, the crew takes a different way into uh, a reactor that's very similar from the one we opened the game in. The layout is basically exactly the same. There are little subtle color differences that will suggest it's not the exact same reactor. But you head down to the main area, again, mostly unencumbered, where you would set the bomb the first time and if you'll recall cloud had a very minor wig out moment mm -hmm. that he very quickly brushed aside well he has a slightly more major wig out moment this time screen goes all red again this time we get a distinct heartbeat sound that will play a big role throughout the story and we get a more full flashback this time, pretty clearly, this is just Cloud's memory, or certainly Cloud's mind picturing things. So what we see is Cloud standing at 
another reactor that's actually much different than the one he's standing in. The layout is the same, but the colors are much different. The adornments, it's clearly a different time. And we see a younger looking Tifa standing at the door. This reactor also has a door where uh, the reactors where we've been setting the bombs in current events just have this kind of wheel situation. <laughs> One of the things to note about Tifa here is that she's not in the same outfit that she's wearing in, in the current times of Final Fantasy VII. It's sort of a, I think, I think it's meant to hint that she's from a rural area. Uh, it's more what I think of as the cowboy outfit. So she's got like a leather vest and a leather skirt and a, and a cowboy hat. I mean, it's still obviously Tifa. And, it, you know, it, it's worth noting that characters in video games tend not to change clothes that often because they don't want to have to create a game model or design all these different outfits for characters over and over again because that gets extraordinarily tedious. In fact, we talked about that in Final Fantasy V, the people uh, who had to design all five light warriors, different outfits for every single freaking job. We're losing their minds over it and then animate them all. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a bit, it's almost off-putting that she has a different costume or, or a different outfit just because we tend not to see that in video games. But I do think it's meant to indicate that, uh, you know, she's younger here. She's maybe a little more innocent, hasn't had uh, too many tragedies in her life up until this particular flashback. Yeah. Uh, and it's also just a good visual way of letting us know this is a different time and place, even though this scene maybe lasts all of five to ten seconds, because we just see Tifa say, Papa. And then she says, Sephiroth? Did Sephiroth do this to you? Shinra, Mako, Sephiroth, I hate them all. And that's the end of the flashback. We get right back to... Cloud Tifa and Barrett in real time. Barrett going, hey man, get a hold of yourself. <laughs> Cloud just shakes it off as though nothing happened, doesn't, you know, want to let these people in on what's going on with him. They are barely his friends at this point. Right. He, I mean, he, he is still, he's, he's in this weird position where he knows he's supposed to be this stoic mercenary dude. But there, there's something off with his memories and he, you know, he needs to, it, it's almost like uh, those people who feel like if they show their emotions, if they show that they're having trouble, if they show any sort of weakness, that people aren't going to trust them. They're not going to, you know, th that it's not going to work out well for them, that the people expect them to be strong, so they have to be strong. So any sign of weakness, he just ignores uh, you know, he's focusing on the now. He's focusing on moving forward, right? The past is in the past. I don't need to worry about that. I'm worried about what's going on now. Now. You're looking at now, sir. Everything that happens now is happening now. What happened to then? The past then. When? Just now. We're at now now. Go back to then. When? Now. Now? Now. I can't. Why? We missed it. When? Just now. When will then be now? Soon. All right, so the team sets the bomb no guard scorpion this time okay that's odd you're bouncing uh, you, you take a different way out than you did the first time around and it turns out it's a trap <laughs> uh-huh this particular mission was predicted and as you're escaping over a platform kind of in a t-shape Again, hanging over the slums beneath, kind of on a scaffolding, a helicopter arrives, a ladder comes down, and off of it steps President Shinra. That is bold, the president of, of an energy company who is uh, going to face down these eco-terrorists on his own, like one-on-one. -on -one. That's, uh, that's pretty ballsy. So again, we're going to try to, we're going to run out of 
being able to do this here pretty soon. <laughs> but in the remake trailers, mm -hmm. it does appear as though uh, he shows up here as like a hologram instead right. of as himself, which I think there's also merit to if you're going to suggest that he's a coward. Because you're right, it, it's almost a, a baller move right. for him to show up in person here. Yeah, so the trailer makes him a little more Wizard of Oz. You know, the, the like you said, the hologram, the, the stage magic. Like, I don't know if I respect him more for, for this move in the original as opposed to what the remake appears to be doing, but it, it might not be that significant of a change because it's not like he's in any real danger here. Good point. Um, they're, of course, very confused why he's there, both Barrett and Tifa. And he begins by saying, you must all be, what was it again? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I, I seem to recall having heard your name at some point, but you're not quite important enough for me to remember. Do you remember that Street Fighter movie with Raul Julia and Jean-Claude Van Damme? Do I remember? How dare you, I, sir? I know, I know. <laughs> but we can all go home. <laughs> okay, the reason I ask, as I'm sure, sure you will recall, Chun-Li goes to, you know, she's pissed that M. Bison has killed her father, and her whole point throughout that whole movie is to get him alone so that she can take revenge. And she, you know, she says, mm -hmm. you killed my father, prepare to die. She has her Inigo Montoya moment, <laughs> and Raul Julia, who was really sick at the time, and it's, it's actually kind of sad, but Raul Julia as M. Bison gives this beautiful performance. He says, you know, the day M. Bison blessed your village was the most important day of your life but for me it was a tuesday yeah and and such a good line i mean it was that that's what this strikes me as like you are not important enough that's the the thanos scarlet witch moment in infinity war 2 so spoilers but you know she says to him you took everything from me and he says i don't know who you are yeah in addition to it existing brilliantly in that tradition, it also so smartly sets up what happens next. Because first of all, Barrett gives him the what have you. <laughs> We're Avalanche, don't you forget it. You know, the whole thing, how dare you. Cloud's in a whole different space. Yeah. And for the first time in the game, we see him, like, seem to care about something steps forward and he says, it's good to see you again, sir. President Shinra goes, huh? Oh, you. Look in your eyes. Something, but I can't remember everyone unless you turn out to be another Sephiroth. Now, he was brilliant. Maybe too brilliant. So that line gives us a ton more information. Again, we're getting this buildup of, of Sephiroth and how important he was. But also... He doubles down on this, you're not important enough to remember thing. And so we're given reason to believe that Cloud absolutely is who he says he is. <laughs> he just didn't become Sephiroth, so he didn't, you know, like he said to Tifa earlier, well, I'm not famous. Right. I'm a member of Soldier, this elite group of superpowered fighters who, who work for the corporation slash nation of the Shinra Energy Corporation. But I'm still no Sephiroth. Everyone is measured against Sephiroth. Right. And so Barrett says he doesn't give a damn about any of this, which he will eventually. But for now, you can understand why he wouldn't care about old war heroes from the past. And President Shinra just dismisses all of them, says, you're a bunch of vermin. I have a dinner to attend. <laughs> Ugh, yeah. Rich people. Honestly, come on. Uh <laughs> And then, of course, he drops a giant mech on them. The Airbuster, a techno soldier from the weapon development department. And he says this very cyberpunk thing that, again, other parts of the world, you know, you wonder where the technology is at. But he says, the data he'll extract from your dead bodies will be of great use in future experiments, which is also a hint yeah. at a deeper, sinister goings-on with Shinra. So he... Hops on the helicopter, gets out of there. You, Of course, you defeat the Airbuster because you're awesome at role-playing games. And 
Uh, but doing so makes it explode and creates a hole in the platform you've been standing on that, of course, separates the party. Cloud falls down in the middle of it. He hangs on for a minute. You know, one of those scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep, like you do. This is also a good little bit of storytelling through gameplay because during the fight, uh, Shinra actually drops the Airbuster like right in the middle of the party, which provides you for an advantage in battle because it's it's a pincer attack. We've discussed those before where two members of the party are on one side and one member is on the other. And so, uh, you know, the battle takes place that way. It's a nice little way of just changing things up and creating a different battle strategy. But it's also a great way to move the plot forward because uh, these two different sets of people now are going to need to be separated. So the explosion at the end of the battle puts them on opposite sides of this crater with Cloud just hanging on. And Tifa has this great line where she says, Cloud, please don't die. There's still so much I want to tell you. Yeah. She might know some things that he does not or can't remember. It's great because the writing isn't especially complicated, difficult to read. There's not a high level of vocabulary, but it is exceptionally clever. Right. There, there's double meanings all over the place, especially when it comes to right. the interactions between Tifa and Cloud. So you have the option of saying either be strong or not sure I can hold. I went with be strong, worry about yourselves. Uh-huh. And then the reactor explodes, and in a very brief FMV, not one where the character models change, just where the background sort of becomes far more expressive, Cloud falls into darkness. So it is not uncommon for characters to to have a blackout moment and we worry for a moment, are they, are they dead? Have they died by falling into darkness? In fact, if you're looking at a story through the lens of the hero with a thousand faces through the hero's journey, uh, as understood by Joseph Campbell, then, then you come to expect characters to, to be in danger and not know whether or not they're going to survive, even if it's early in the story or in the middle of the story. So uh, we see this in Final Fantasy VI, right, with Terra. She falls down a hole in the caves of Narsh at one point and blacks out. For that matter, when she uh, turns into an esper and, and flies off, we have no idea if she's okay. And then she ends up in a coma. Yeah, and in Final Fantasy VIII, Squall famously is impaled by ice at one point. Right. And wakes up somewhere else after a long blackout. Titus, his inciting incident in Final Fantasy X is to be obviously transported somewhere else, but uh, they're kind of two different long blackout moments for him early on where he wakes up somewhere completely different. And in Final Fantasy II, it happens right at the beginning. Our heroes are, are fighting off the soldiers of the Emperor as they're fleeing the, the burning town of Finn and you go into a fight scene and you get whacked hard and I mean presumably these heroes will continue with us but only three of the four do. Yeah. Something that's also common with these kinds of scenes in Final Fantasy or in any movie or television show you've ever watched whether it's dialogue on the screen or the voice of an actor before we see anything, we'll hear something yeah. as the character is coming out of their blackoutedness, their coma, however long or short it may have been. And we get that here. Over just a black screen, we get text. Ellipses, you all right? Ellipses, can you hear me? And again, this is one of those things that 
In video games, before there was voice acting, there was a unique relationship. Because you have no idea. Is he being spoken to by a man? A woman? Mm-hmm. A monster? An older brother? <laughs> so Cloud just responds, yeah. And then this voice says, back then, I only got scraped knees. Cloud says, what do you mean by back then? And then this voice says, what about now? Can you get up? Cloud's, back then? Now? And then the voice says, don't worry about me. Worry about yourself. And then Cloud starts coming to, and we start seeing things. And wouldn't you know it, what are the odds? <laughs> uh huh. For the third time, we are introduced to Aerith Gainsborough. I can't remember where I've seen this. And as you said, we won't, don't want to get too much into what the remake's going to be. But there's a, a screen where it says, you know, you know oftentimes uh, in, in these sorts of games and, and shows and such, when you're introduced to a new character, it might flash their name and uh, you know, profession or something across the, across the screen. And so for the remake, it looks like it's going to say, Aerith Gainsborough, Flower Merchant, which mm. is, is neat. And it's kind of cute, but the reason I think it's neat is because it totally undersells what a badass maid she is, and I kind of right. dig that. Yeah, I like that a lot. And, you know, these are, so far, we've had a lot of questions about this girl. Why did the game begin right. on her face yeah. and and with her walking down that alley? And why did we see her again and buy a flower from her just after the first mission make a comment about how unusual it is for there to be flowers in the slums. And here all of a sudden cloud literally falls into a bed of them. And Aerith explains that she says the roof and the flower bed broke your fall. This is a church (laughs) in the sector five slums, uh, that it's a sacred place and that flowers bloom here. And then you can either remember her and say, Hey, you were selling flowers or for some reason, it gives you the opportunity to confuse her with the slum drunk. Jeez. I know. Instead, It doesn't really matter which you do. Aerith will change the conversation quickly. And she asks about whether or not Cloud has any materia and mentions that she has some that's special because it does absolutely nothing. Huh. And then Cloud mansplains to her. <laughs> uh, Years before that was a thing. Well, no, before it was a word. Right. It was definitely a thing. Right. But he says, you just don't know how to use it. Well, thanks for that, Mr. Man, who just busted up my roof and my flower bed. Right. Also, you really want to tell a woman who's growing flowers in a church in a slum that she doesn't know how to use magic? Well done. Yeah, not especially observant here. But, of course, he's, you know, thinking, well, I'm the materia expert. I just did the tutorial. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) But she says, no, I do. It just doesn't do anything. So she explains that the materia was her mother's, which is interesting. And then this is where you officially do get to name her. And and her uh, name is, of course, Eris, right? Erith's. Er, so. so, yeah, in the original game, there's an S in it. Right. And so for years we pronounced it that way. Don't be mad at us. Right. Well, I thought it was Ares. Like, I thought maybe this was a parallel to the Greek god of war. That's not what they're going for here. No. So is this a, a phonetic translation issue, since you're a Japanese language expert on this podcast? That is exactly what it is, because in Japanese, Aerith and Eris would be spelled exactly the same. The TH sound does not occur naturally in the Japanese language. So when they're trying to spell words in other languages that use that sound, the closest they can get is with an S. But... We've also discussed before how consonants rarely appear on their own in Japanese. They're usually attached to a vowel uh, that comes afterwards. Other than N, uh, Japanese words typically don't end on consonants either. And so 
spelling phonetically the what I do believe is the canonical English way to say her name, Aerith, which I also think is very beautiful and meaningful, and we'll get into that in a second, but is very difficult to do in Japanese. If you look at the way it is spelled in katakana, it is phonetically pronounced. Remember, our vowels are a, e, u, e, and o. So it's e, ri, su. So maybe none of us are saying it exactly right. I do also think that it's supposed to be purposefully close to the English word earth. Okay. To fit into okay. the terra, earth, cloud, squall, Titus, Zidon. Zidon does fit in there, actually, I learned recently. Oh, does it? Um, I did not yeah. know that. Noctis does. I know I know what Noctis means because it's sure. Latin. Right. And Luna. And Luna. Obviously. Yep, yep. So that Aerith or Aerith and Eris, and, and I do think there are relations if you want to look for them to mythology, for sure, but not, as you said, to Eris, the Greek god of war. I have no idea what Gainsborough is about. <laughs> I don't either. Maybe someone will let us know. So uh, let's take a moment here to do a brief character study of Aerith Gainsborough. She is a, a pale-skinned young woman with long brown hair, usually pulled back into a single braid. Uh, she wears typically a pink dress with a red jacket over it. I think it's kind of a cool look. It, it really feels to me like a, a quintessential 90s look because she's got sort of the dainty pink dress, but also the red jean jacket, or maybe it's a leather jacket. And she's also got these thick boots. So on the one hand, she's kind of a girly girl. On the other hand, she's ready to go on a hike. You know, she's not, because, you know, if you're walking yeah. around the slums all day selling flowers, you want good footwear. She's got bright green eyes, yeah. right? Or, or sort of that bluish turquoise green mm -hmm. uh, that I think is particularly important for being very similar to the color of Mako Energy. And she spends right. her time living in this abandoned church in Sector 5 slums, growing and selling flowers. And, and like I said, she is a badass maid. She knows how to use materia. She wields a staff that she can use in close combat, but she's definitely the mage of the group. She's the red mage. Uh, so that I, li I like that she's wearing pink and red because she's all about all the schools of magic. She does have that particular uh, piece of materia caught up in a bow in her hair. Uh, so as a family memento, I think that's particularly nice. She, she's the most peaceful character of, of the group, I would say. She's, you know, she's going to join us as a party member, so she's definitely an adventurer, a warrior type, in that she's willing to go out and fight for what she believes in. But she's also the one who uh, grows flowers. She's also you know, the one who wields white magic, you know, from the outset, right? So she's, she's got that uh, gentler side that most of the other characters don't. Because the other characters are largely caught up in this fight for not being oppressed by the megacorporation on this world. Yeah, she definitely represents the spiritual heart of the story. Uh, and that will become more and more clear, obviously, as we go throughout. Um, but she is... I think it's a trap that some people fall in to see her as this entirely sort of graceful, quiet, uh, peaceful personality. She shows, especially early on here, a lot of adventurous spirit, as you put it, even a lot of like willingness to tease Cloud about things. She's very open about some stuff we're going to find out about here very quickly. And she's just one of the most popular Final Fantasy characters for all time for a lot of reasons. Uh, much like Cloud, the story is a lot about her. So, you know, it's we'll learn more and more as we go throughout how she comes to embody and represent some of the most important metaphysical and spiritual themes of Final Fantasy VII or really of Final Fantasy in general. But yeah, she's one of the most popular characters of all time. And I think it's because she's a lot of different things. And we're going to learn about those things. Uh, she's listed at 22 years old, by the way. I don't think we've mentioned. So she's a year older than Cloud at 21 and two years older than Tifa 
at 20. Uh, Barrett is listed as 35 years old. It kind of blows my mind that at this point I'm older than Barrett. <laughs> sure. So once we get her name officially, and it is Aerith now officially with the TH, and that's fine. Cloud explains rather than saying, hey, I'm a mercenary who fights people for money. He calls himself a jack of all trades. Right. You know? It's not wrong. Right. Yeah, right. I fight yeah. lots of different people. That makes me a jack of all trades. Right. During their conversation, by the way, some mysterious guy in a suit just walks into the church in the background and stands there. I want to detour for a moment. It's interesting that it's a church because we've talked before about how there's not a whole lot of actual religious organizations in Final Fantasy, right? We talked about in Six how there's a lot of allusions to real world religion, but there's no like overt religion in that world. But here there is a church. A church to whom? I don't know. Don't know. So this presumably prompts Aerith to ask Cloud if he's ever been a bodyguard. Yeah, good good choice. If, if a mysterious suited figure enters my church, but I've got this uh, handsome young man with a giant sword uh, who seems to be kind, definitely going to ask him to be my bodyguard. So she says, get me out of here. Take me home. Cloud says, all right, but it'll cost you. What a jerk. And she says, well, how about if I go out with you once? See, and she's immediately being very flirtatious and playful. Uh -huh. She's not exactly a little misreserved here either. Right. Church girl, you know. Right. And Cloud says, but I don't know who you are and you don't know me. Right. Also makes sense. Very sensible. I also think that's interesting, again, back from the writing standpoint, that he didn't say, we just met or we don't know each other, but rather... I don't know you and you don't know me, which perhaps suggests again at this deeper identity crisis that maybe is plaguing both of them. They don't know each other and they don't know themselves quite as well as they think they might. But we know from the intro that their destinies are intertwined. And in the middle of this very playful moment, another random text of dialogue. I know you. Man, that... Dude, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I have a lot of self-doubt at times, so I've got that voice in my head that's that inner critic that's always sort of, you know, that's not quite good enough. Do you really want to phrase it that way? Do you maybe want to think about how you could do this better? If I had a voice like that in my head, oh, I know who you are. Man, I think I'd be pretty uh, trying to stay focused on the present and stoic also. Yeah. At this point... Cloud realizes that he kind of recognizes the uniform and they decide they're going to sneak out the back. Now, again, try not to do this too much. It does look like in the remake, there's a, a fight with Reno here, a more proper introduction. All we get in the original is the introduction of him. One of the soldiers say, hey, should we run after him and bring him down? And Reno just goes, I haven't really decided. <laughs> and then he walks right through the flower bed. Rude. Super rude. Super, well, no, Reno. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, very good. Very good. He makes a comment about those Mako eyes. Yes. Here's where we start getting hints, right, that people involved with soldier are maybe a little superhuman. Then as his soldiers follow him, he admonishes them. He says, don't step on the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> proper hypocrite leader stuff. Then there's a very silly scene where Aerith and Cloud escape through the attic, but they can kind of get separated. And so Cloud's up in the rafters and Aerith is down below. And you can like tell her to run or stay put and try to drop barrels down on people. It, it's very right. reminiscent of the uh, opera scene with Ultros fighting rats and goblins in the rafters and stuff. I think this is where, uh, you know, in, in games now you'll have those real-time events, you know, press O at the right time, it'll it'll prompt yeah. you real quick, and then the cinematic will do, will, will respond in some way. I feel like that's the natural evolution of these sort of goofy mini-games that we get throughout Final Fantasy VII. Absolutely, that's a great pull, because this is meant to build 
some tension. She's being chased. You got to try to help her. It is oddly satisfying when you drop a barrel right on a dude or, or hit one on <laughs> right. the stairs. As yeah. They're coming out and get two with one. Um, but it's pretty silly. Yeah, and, and we'll come up upon a few mini games here that I think work really well. This one just feels, like you said, kind of kind of goofy. Yeah. Then we get this exchange between Aerith and Cloud that is super interesting. It gives us a lot of information. She says, they're looking for me again. Yep. And then Cloud makes it clear he knows who they are. The Turks, he says. They scout for soldier candidates. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, that they have been looking for Aerith before suggests that she has a history with Shinra uh, and this group, this part of Shinra, and that the fact that Turks scout for soldier candidates. So they're not soldier themselves. They're not the superhuman heroes of the war, but they're kind of these, they find those guys, right? So they're, they're the baseball scouts. They're the ones who maybe make the heroes who they are. That's wildly interesting to me. Yeah, and and it only gets more and more interesting. And Aerith immediately says this violently, though. They're trying to kidnap people to recruit them. And Cloud says, yeah, they also do all this dirty stuff on the side, like spying and murder. So why are they after you? Nice. And Aerith, totally deflecting, (laughs) says, maybe I have what it takes to be in Soldier. But you know what? Maybe she freaking does. Maybe she, she is a badass. Does. <laughs> That's not why they're after her, and she no. knows it. Yeah. But it is funny how that plays on our expectations as probably teenage boys playing a video game. Ha! <laughs> like yeah. the girl could be in Soldier. Right. Good call. But she could. Then I've always found this scene really beautiful, what follows. They sort of bounce after that, and they, they run across all of these rooftops in the slums that are just kind of wrecked, rusty metal. But I I wrote it down here. I wrote dancing across the beautiful wreckage. That's that's my note. Very good. And that's, they just sort of dance across the beautiful wreckage. And at one point, Cloud sort of gets well ahead of her and Aerith says, hey, 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 come on, don't leave me behind. And Cloud says, I thought you were cut out to be in Soldier. So now he's teasing back and they're, being sweet to each other yeah the banter between party members in in an rpg is is important i like it and this is the kind of stuff that i think will get really fleshed out with more and more lines of dialogue but it's amazing to see what they were able to do uh, with these pretty brief simple ones cloud explains that he was in soldier and Aerith kind of guesses because she could see his eyes which again hints that she knows more about soldier and you know people who have those kinds of eyes and what's going on there. Cloud even says, "Hey, how do you know about that?" She goes, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> so, one of the things that you can do, and you you can kind of find this at any point, but on your way to take Aerith home, I I happen to do it on, at this point on my playthrough was you can stop in that little bit in Sector Six where it's really rough and there's the the guy in the pipe who are sick there's the famous <laughs> mistranslation of this guy are sick uh, but i also think it's funny that you know that that became a, a kind of a infamous moment i guess from this game but that little bit which is a little thing you can do and go find him some medicine helps him out just gives you a little bit more about Aerith's desire to help mm-hmm. anybody and everybody and it's a very sweet nature. That yeah. She well, and, and we've talked before about how, in a way, that's what the Warriors of Light are about. You help Matoya because uh, by helping Matoya, you get to progress the game. But also, this is a person who needs your help. And we are heroes, after all. Right. So you take Aerith home, and you find this house that's surrounded by tons of flowers. And there's a like a waterfall or maybe even Mako fall in the background. It's, it's kind of hard to tell in the old one. I always assumed it was a waterfall, but it does have kind of a green hue to it. Sure. Of course, Mako is probably seeped into the water supply everywhere here. Would that be deleterious? 
Like, if oil seeped into my water supply, that would be bad, right? But if Mako is in your water supply, if the life energy of the planet, I don't know. I don't know. It does do some pretty horrible things at times. We'll get to that. Right. But, yeah. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. But anyway, you arrive and you are introduced to a woman named Elmira, who, as you walk in the home, says, you were followed again? So they've been through this before. <laughs> Cloud, you know, doesn't want to do too much standing around. Hey, I took you home. Is Sector 7 far from here? I got to get back to Tifa's bar. And Aerith wants to know, Tifa, is that a girl? Is that a girlfriend? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you as Cloud are given the choice between no way... Or, yeah, that's right. I don't like those options. <laughs> no, no. Remake. Give me more options. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, and at this point, we're spoiled with games that give you all sorts of conversation options. I don't know how they're going to do it in the remake, obviously. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it would be, I mean, I don't know, man. What, what would you say, just as you, if Drew were posed this question with Cloud's interactions thus far? I would just say, no, we're just friends. Okay. Um, but not no way, exclamation point. Exactly. Uh, but that's the closest I had. So, of course, that's what I answered, to which Aerith replied, you don't have to get that upset. And she's okay. right. Right. <laughs> uh, but I do think a lot of men in particular do respond that way when someone says, Hey, are you with that person and they're not? They do have a hard time just saying no rather than no way. And there's this sort of weird expectation that if you are with somebody who if you're if you're a man hanging out with a woman, then obviously you're a couple and vice versa. Uh, and I think that goes to speak to some of our gender role expectations that uh, can be kind of limiting. Uh, like you're not allowed to have a friend who is a woman if you're a man. She is either your significant other or you shouldn't be hanging out with her. And that's that's silly. Um, and then there's another element of gender dynamics that get really interesting here as well. Because Aerith decides that she should take Cloud to Sector 7 because it's dangerous and he doesn't know how to get there. Uh -huh. And Cloud's going... First of all, wait a minute. I just brought you here. Uh -huh. <laughs> and and second of all, he's like, what, what makes you think I need help from a girl? Said, yeah, all Whoa. right, dude. Come Whoa. on now. And she just jumps by that, man. She just goes, what do you mean? I'm taking you. <laughs> and and we, we've had that whole discussion with the uh, boys of Final Fantasy IV telling uh, Rosa and Rydia that they're not, they're not coming to help take on the, the space aliens. And, 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 you know, we, we've had our discussion and, and we got a little pushback and that's fine. But there's a, there's a certain amount of, on the one hand, you want to protect the people who mean the most to you. On the other hand, you don't get to decide that they don't get to go on the adventure, no matter your sex or gender. Right. So Elmira decides to be the voice of reason here and says, can you just go tomorrow? And they go, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. And she goes, Aerith, head on upstairs. Why don't you make... The you know make up the guest room as you would for Cloud, so she goes up to do that. Elmira recognizes that he was in Soldier. She sees the eyes right away. She sees what's going on here. In fact, she knows a lot more than the player does at this point. And she says, "Please leave here tonight. The last thing Aerith needs is to get hurt again." Yeah, more hints of what has happened as opposed to just coming right out and saying it. I do think there's an interesting line in writing where you can be coy about what's going on and you can be overt about what's going on and towing the line can be difficult. You, you kind of got to decide what kind of story you're telling. Are you telling a story where the whole point is to slowly uncover your main character's past? Well, then maybe you want to be a little more coy, but it can be kind of frustrating sometimes to have all these characters know things and refuse to say them to you, the reader. Yeah. And then I love that in this story, yeah, there's plenty of contextual reasons why they wouldn't just want to come out and talk about it, especially right. Tifa. And we'll, we'll get back to that. 
But Cloud heads upstairs, decides, all right, you know, Aerith made up the room, time to get into bed. And there's this line that I love that might seem very minimal or unimportant. Before going to bed, Cloud just says, I haven't slept in a bed like this in a long time. And back to what you were saying, there's so much about this story that just begs questions. And this is all such great setup because we're starting to get pieces of Cloud's story. We got a memory from seven years ago. Uh, Then we've got a little bit of a concept of what he's been doing in the meantime. Okay, he's been in Shinra soldier. He's been in the military. He's been a mercenary. So we get that he's had you know, a rough life that he hasn't really been at a place he's felt like was home in a very long time. But maybe in this time and in this place and with this person, he's starting to feel a little bit at home. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod or email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. The podcast is free to listen to via archive.org or on Patreon, but if you want to download it and stream it on your regular podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we visit Walmart face off against Don Corneo and rush back to the Sector 7 pillar.